around us or that are happening to us. If God loves us, why? But I promise you this, when we get there and see him face to face and all that he's prepared for us, we'll never question his love for us again. When we see him in his holiness and we realize maybe for the first time ever that the pure depths of our sinfulness, we'll never question his love again. I know, we, we, you know, as, especially after we give our life to the Lord and we spend a few years in service to him, I think his love maybe loses a little bit of its shine, loses a little bit of its appeal to us. But the Bible tells me that it's the love of God that brought me to repentance. And, and were he not searching for me when I was lost and undone, I'd have never been found. I didn't come to him on my own. I came to him because he came to me. He loved me. Before I loved him, he loved me when I was unlovable. He loved me when I had nothing to offer him. And um, what little bit I can do for him now, what little bit I have done for him, one day we're just going to throw it all of his feet, all of it at his feet, and and pour contempt on every little bit of pride that we had, and say, "All glory goes to you, God. Your love was great enough to reach way down and save me." John chapter 13, I, I want to read, I'm going to read this a little bit backwards this morning. I'm going to start at the end and then we're going to work our way back to this point. And um, in verse 31 of John chapter 13, um, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself and shall straightway glorify him. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, and you shall seek me. And as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. So John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 are what, um, what people refer to, what scholars often refer to as the upper room discourse. Um, it is that last gathering that Jesus had with his disciples before he went to the cross. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't record all of this detail. Um, John was probably the last gospel that was written, and he didn't write it from a historical perspective. He didn't go from the beginning of Jesus' life to the end of his life in the sense of laying out a historical account. Um, John's gospel focused more on who Jesus was and what he said. And at the end of his writings, he said, if we had written everything that he had said and done, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain it all. But John, with his gospel, kind of filled in some gaps, especially of some of the dialogue that took place between Jesus and his disciples. I've been thinking for several weeks about what to preach leading up to Easter. Easter is the high holy day in Christianity. It's our, our whole salvation hinges on the crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says if he's not raised from the dead, then we're still dead in our sins. And, uh, and there is no hope of life after this one. And so, you know, that, that, that being the high holy day of Christianity, um, I've been pondering what to, what to preach on leading up to Easter, and, and I kept being led back to this upper room discourse, the last things that Jesus said to his disciples before the cross. And my intent was to just knock out a chapter every week, and after I got to studying it, reading it, I realized that's impossible because I'm, I'm, I, I won't 
be able to consider everything that's written if I, if I preach it that way. So we're going to look at it more from a perspective of the different subjects that are being addressed. And it won't end at Easter. I'm sure we'll wind up in the end of April before we get through with this series. Um, but according to what he said in John chapter 14, verse 30, he wasn't going to talk much to his disciples after this. He said, I'm not going to speak with you much more. I think those 40 days post-resurrection, he didn't teach them a whole lot. He and I already taught them. Um, his post his post-resurrection appearances were more to authenticate what he had already said and to prove that he had been risen, that he was risen from the dead alive forevermore. So Jesus said, this is it. I'm about to pour out my heart to you. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say much to you after this, so you need to listen carefully to what I say. And so I'm going to call this series, Last Words to Living Witnesses. Last Words to Living Witnesses. Because what Jesus was about to do was leave this world in the hands of these 12 men and, and, and trust them to carry the gospel of the kingdom to the rest of the world. And you got to keep this in mind when he's, when he's leaving this with them that the success of the gospel was dependent on these men going out and doing what he called them to do. So this is a big deal. What he's, would you agree that, that, that we ought to cling to the man's last words, especially when the man is Jesus? I'm, I thought this morning about some of the last words that I've heard in my life. Johnny Walden, I remember one of the last conversations I had with him. He said, Preacher, I know you may think I'm crazy. But he said, there's angels that are filling up this room right now. And I said, Johnny, I can't see them. But I know the scripture says God sends his angels to be ministering spirits to those that believe. I've never forgot that. He saw things that I couldn't see, which gave me confidence that there is a realm beyond the dimension that we see. I remember spending that last Thursday with my grandmother. I can remember so much of that conversation about her loyalty to the church and how she raised 11 kids with a granddaddy that didn't, that, that didn't help her a lot, but she got them 11 kids to church every Sunday morning. I remember going and visiting Miss Ann Mercer. The last, time, the last conversation I had with her, she was very weak and bedridden, and, um, and you, you know her mental capacity went, went away, and, but, but I stood up and, and, and grabbed her by the hand and asked her, if I could pray for her, and the last words that Sister Ann Mercer ever said to me, she said, let me tell you three things. And I said, all right, I'm listening. She said, always pray. Always pray. Be good and do your best. <laughs> I'm like, wow, I can hang on to that. That's pretty simple, but it's pretty powerful too. Last words. When people know that they're about to leave you behind, they want what they say last to you to count. So I think we ought to consider the last words of Jesus as he left the gospel in the hands of his disciples. And I'm going to try to get through most of chapter 13 today, but we're going to leave off the end of it because I think it connects more closely with chapter 14. Um, but the primary subject that's covered in the verses that we read, Jesus is simply telling his disciples, I want you to love others like I've loved you. Specifically, he said, I want you to love one another. Inside the context of the church, I want you to love one another like I have loved you. Love like me. I'm leaving you behind. I'm leaving you behind to show the world the way to me, and the way the world will know the way to me is if you love each other like I've loved you. That's what he said in that last verse. Um, 
By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you love each other like I've loved you. Before we get to the example of his love that I think John points to us, I want to show you the context of that and show you uh, what that means to what he did. John chapter 13, if you'll back up with me and begin reading in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he was come from God and went to God, and then Paul's right there. Let me, just, let me just point you to the things that Jesus knew. Cody, put them up on the screen. You can see, but I'm, I'm going to be specific about what Jesus knew before he did what he did and before he said what he said and before he felt what he felt. I've given you the whole outline right there. I want you to see what Jesus knew before he did what he did. He knew his hour was come. You can go all the way back to chapter 12 and understand this, that Jesus knew that the reason that he was born was so that he could die. He knew that his whole life had been lived for this specific moment and that hour had come. Um, before this time, the next day, Jesus would be in a tomb. Before this time, 24 hours later, Jesus would have been crucified and buried in a borrowed tomb. He knew that this was his hour. He knew that the hour for which he was born was the hour that he must die. And he was about to face the most intense trial of his whole incarnation. He had been tested and tempted and tried throughout his life. The Bible says that he was tempted in every point just like we are, yet without sin. But what he's about to face in the next few hours is the most intense persecution and temptation and trial that he'd ever experienced and that he would ever experience in his whole life. It was coming on the cross, especially in those last three hours when the Father turned his back and, and it became darkness over all the land and Jesus cried from the cross, why have you forsaken me? He never felt that before, but he knew that was coming because he carried the weight of sin on his shoulders. He dreaded it, but he knew that it had to be done. Um, Hebrews tells us that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He didn't relish anything about the cross what he was looking forward to was what came after the cross, and that's mine and your salvation. But it was his hour. He knew that this was the hour for which he came. He knew them. He knew that even in that sacred moment, Luke, Luke tells us this. You, you won't find it in John's gospel. You, well, you can find it, but you have to look a little bit further back. The disciples had this ongoing argument about who was the greatest. If you read Luke's gospel, Luke says that even in the Last Supper, even in the upper room experience, that there was a dispute among the disciples about who was the greatest among them. Who's the most important? Who does Jesus love the most? Who, who, who's leading this, um, this group of disciples? He knew them. He knew that they were arguing even in that sacred moment among themselves about who was the greatest. He knew that Judas was a thief. You won't find that in John's Gospel. If you look in the other Gospels, you'll find out that Judas was the treasure of the group, but that he was skimming money off of the treasury. They trusted him with the money, 
but he was taking it for himself. He was a thief. Jesus also knew that in a, in a matter of a few hours that this man would betray him for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus knew that. He knew that Peter was still full of pride and that within a matter of a few hours that, that Peter was going to use profanity and say, I don't even know who you're talking about. I'm not one of his disciples. I've never been one of his disciples. I don't even know the man that you're accusing me of following. He knew that Peter was proud. He knew that Peter was going to deny him. He knew that, that, that when he took that inner circle, those three closest disciples that he had shown himself to on the Mount of Transfiguration, who should have no doubt who he is and what he came to do, the, the, the inner circle of Peter, James, and John, Jesus would take them a lot, little further into the Garden of Gethsemane than he took any of the other apostles, and he would ask them. He said, I want you to stay here and pray with me as I go a little further. And You know, he poured out his heart there. And every time he came back to the disciples, he asked them to pray one hour. Just pray one hour. And every time he came back, they were sleeping. The greatest hour of his life was ahead of him. He asked them to pray and they couldn't even stay awake to pray. And then he knew just right after that that all of them, not just Peter, not just Judas, he knew all of them would desert him. They'd abandon him. They'd flee in fear of their own lives. He knew his hour was come. He knew those that were, that were in that room better than they knew themselves. He also knew that he loved them. Every last one of them. From John the beloved to Judas the betrayer. He loved every one of them. And let me say this. He didn't love one more than he loved the other. He loved them all. The Bible says that everyone that God gave him in the world, he loved every one of them unto the end. I looked up that word end. It literally means ultimately um, uttermost. It means you could not have loved them more than they were loved. He loved them unto the end, fully, completely. For as long as he lived and he lives forevermore, he loves. He loved them completely. It wasn't, we look at love sometimes as just being some kind of sentimental feeling. We, had a, we have a feeling of love. That's not the kind of love Jesus is talking about. That's agape love that he's talking about. And the love that he's talking about, the way that he loved them is a deliberate, determined, willful choice. I have loved them uh, and I will love them unto the very end. That's what he knew. And, and, and last but not least, he knew who he was. He knew himself. You look at verse 3. He knew that he had authority that had been given to him from God. He knew he had the power that had been given to him from God. He knew where he come from. He came from heaven. He knew where he was going to. He was going back to heaven. He knew all of that about himself. He knew that. Knowing all that context, knowing that he knew his reason and purpose, that this was his hour, that these were his people, Look what he did next. Verse 4 said, He riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them 
with the towel, towel wherewith he was girded. Now, let me, let me just say that we practice this as an ordinance as a church. I don't think it's something that, that a church has to do. I don't think that makes us better than any other church or denomination, but we still practice this as an ordinance. Uh, just like the cup represents his blood and the, and the um, bread represents his body and the baptism represents his death, burial, and resurrection, we believe that the, that the washing of the saints' feet represent the life that he has called us to live in humility and service to one another. But what was going on here tonight is a, was a Jewish tradition. They walked dusty streets then. They walked dusty streets with sandals then. It was the job of the lowest slave in, a, in one's household to wash the guest's feet. Now, whether they had had their feet washed as they came in or not, I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure what's going Maybe somebody forgot to do this duty. Maybe it had already been done. Maybe Jesus did this solely and completely because he wanted to illustrate something for them. But you've got to understand that what Jesus did was the job of the lowest servant in the house was to wash the guest's feet. So Jesus, knowing everything that he knew, that his hour was come, that these disciples were arguing among themselves about who would be the greatest, that he loved them too much not to do what he had to do, knowing that God had given all authority in his hands. And he, I mean, the Bible says that he has all authority and power in heaven and in earth. God has submitted the kingdom completely to Christ. Knowing that, he got up from supper, laid aside his garments, wrapped a towel around his waist, poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet. Now, I think there are two things going on here. The first is, I think that he is illustrating his own incarnation. And you go read Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. It says that Jesus made himself of no reputation... And took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. What Jesus is illustrating for the disciples is, this is what I've already done for you and I'm going to do it to you so you can see it. Um, Jesus left the throne of glory. He was not. He didn't begin his existence in Bethlehem. Uh, the, the Bible says that he is the everlasting father, the prince of peace. He has always been. He became incarnate in Bethlehem, but Jesus was the ancient of days. He, has, uh, he is as eternal as the Godhead is eternal. So here's what he said. I stepped out of heaven. I stood up from the throne of heaven. I laid my glory aside. I stepped down to earth and robed myself uh, in the form of a servant and I became obedient even to death on the cross for you. So he's illustrating his incarnation. He's showing them a little, a little um, earthly picture of what happened um, years ago when he stepped out of glory and robed himself and became a servant to all men. The second thing I think that he did by that illustration was he admonished their own arrogance. Remember, they're fighting about who's the greatest. They've been with him three years, three and a half years. And Jesus has given them an illustration of the way that he served that entire three and a half years. You're arguing about who's greatest, and what I have taught you is that if you're going to be like me, you've got to humble yourself and serve one another. Um, and and that, will you read that Philippians passage, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. 
And, and, and he talked about how that Jesus didn't look out for his own needs, but he looked out for the needs of others. That he didn't set himself up on a pedestal, but that he took upon himself the form of a servant and he served. He admonished their arrogance by his own example. He challenged what their idea of greatness was. Now listen, he, he, done, he said this to them several times. If you want to be great, be the servant. If you want to be chief, then be last. If you want to, listen, if you want to follow me in the kingdom, you've got to realize it's not about taking a step up, it's about taking a step down. So he's challenging their, their, their idea of greatness. And you know this, actions speak louder than words. And so I think what Jesus is doing is, I've told you this over and over and over again. I have, I have said to you um, that if you want to be chief, you've got to serve. If you want to be great, you've got to step back and be humble. But he's tired of talking now, and he says, I'm going to show you what I mean. And taking the form of the lowest servant in the house, he started washing their feet. Now, I can imagine... I can imagine that every one of them sat there in stunned silence. What is he doing? I mean, this is the man they called Lord. This is the man they called Master. This is the man um, that they believed would be the Savior of the world. This is the man that they understood as the Messiah would become the King. What's he, what is he doing? Washing our feet. And so they sat there and watched him, stunned. And then he got to Peter. Y'all, I'm going to tell you, I identify with Peter better than I identify any apostle in the Old Testament. Not because I'm a powerful preacher, because I'm always putting my foot in my mouth. Because I'm always talking when I ought to be quiet. <laughs> we got to Peter, and Peter said, uh-uh. Look at, verse, look at verse 6. Peter said to them, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus said, what I do thou knowest not now. You're not understanding everything right now. But you will know hereafter. Peter said unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said unto him, He that is washed... Needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And you are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, you are not all clean. So I don't know, what, I don't know what's going on here in Peter's. Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. It could, be, it could be a false humility. It could be, uh-uh. I know who I am, and you're not going to wash my feet. If anything, I ought to be washing yours. You ought not to be washing mine. Maybe it was that false humility. We know that it was false because we've seen later on just how prideful he was. And maybe it was just outright pride. I'm not going to let you do this. And Jesus said, if I don't do this, you don't have any part with me. And we know Peter had an immediate change of heart. And he said, not just my feet, then wash my head, my hands, wash me. Because I don't want to... I don't want a part from you. I want to be a part of you. I, there are three things going on here. Number one, he's showing them their ignorance. You don't know everything you need to know yet. There's still a lot for you to learn. And can I tell you, that's true of all of us. Um, I, the, I, one, of the, one of the 
One of the biggest indicators of pride in our life is when we think we ain't got nothing else to learn. When we become unteachable. When we think we got it all figured out, including God and Himself, His purpose, His plan for our lives. Um, that's pride that's crept in. I'm, I'm here to tell you, God's ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. They're beyond my ability to figure out. I'm finite. He's infinite. There are worlds of difference between him and I. The important thing is that I'm growing day by day, learning every day, seeking his word and his will for my life. But, but Jesus is just pointing out, Peter, you don't even understand what I'm doing right now. You think that you know it all. You think that you've seen it all. But I'm just going to reveal your ignorance. And later on, you're going to understand that I've taught you something here that you would not yet learned he's pointing out their ignorance he's pointing out their their neediness um, I, I think that one thing that the feet washing teaches is that if you're going to be a follower of Christ you've got to submit yourself to his cleansing not just one time but every day that you need him that you need him, that you need him, that you need him. <laughs> you can't walk through this world without getting your feet dirty. I mean, and he's talking to a group of people who knew that in a literal sense because they, they had sandals on their feet. They walked dusty roads. You, you can't walk through this world without dirtying your feet. And for Christian people, listen, we can't walk through this world without defiling ourselves from time to time. Um, the Bible says if we say we have no sin, we're a liar. We walk through this world, we dirty our feet. When we walk through this world, we dirty our testimony. When we walk through this world, um, we, we dirty the example that Christ has set for us. And we have to come back to him over and over and over again and say, Lord, wash me. See, he's making a distinction here. He said, Peter, I don't need to wash all of you because you've been justified. Somebody that's already been justified don't need to be washed all over. They just need to, they just need to have their feet washed. There's a difference that Jesus is painting here between justification and sanctification. You've got to keep coming back to me for, for forgiveness for your daily sins, but you've already been cleansed and made right in the eyes of God. There's that distinction that he's making. He that is washed, he that is justified, don't need to be justified all over again. You're already justified, but you do need to submit yourself to a daily cleansing. You need to let me wash your feet. And I'm here to tell you, I have to go to Jesus every day and say, Lord, forgive me. And I try not to be generic in what I... Listen, here's, here's the danger of coming back to the Lord every day and say, Lord, forgive me this day of my sins. If you don't acknowledge what those sins are, you're going to come back next day and repeat them. Right? But if you come to the Lord every night and say, Lord, I'm sorry, I spoke today when I should have been silent. I, I thought a thought today that you know about that I'm ashamed of and that I don't want to think again. Lord, I did something today, specifically, name it, call it what it is, that was a reproach to you and your kingdom, and I confess it and ask you to cleanse me. And I claim 1 John 1, 9, because you said if I confess my sin, you're faithful and just to cleanse me of my sins, to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Forgive me of my sin and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. That brings accountability to our life when we start naming them one by one. It helps us not to make the same mistakes over and over. But Jesus is illustrating his incarnation. He's admonishing their arrogance. And he knows that 11 of them there had been cleansed inside and out. One of them in there hadn't submitted to that cleansing. 
Now let's move from what he knew and what he did to what he said. Look at verse 12. After he washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down, again he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? You call me Master and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, that word means truly. Truly, truly, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it come that when it has come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I sin, receiveth me. And he that receiveth me, receiveth him that sent me. Now let me just walk you through some of the statements because I think I, I, think I can boil everything he said down there in just a few sh short statements. The first one is, is you should do as I have done to you. What did he just do? In humility and in service, knowing who they were, knowing all of their faults, all of their flaws, all of their failures, knowing that, that, that Peter was going to deny him, that Judas was going to betray him, knowing that they were going to go to sleep in his most desperate hour, knowing that they were all going to run in fear when he was finally carried away. His love endured. And he washed their feet. He did for them. Knowing everything that he knew. You should do as I have done. In humility and in service. Knowing, enduring, and doing what I've done for you, for others. The second thing, the servant is not greater than his Lord. Here's what I think that means. We don't have any right to deny anybody else what he's given to us and what he's done for us. Now, we talk about this all the time when we talk about forgiveness, but it's true of everything. It's true of love. It's true of mercy. It's true of everything that Jesus has done for us. We don't have any right to deny it from anybody else. You know, you know why the Bible tells us to forgive each other? Because God, for Christ's sake, forgave us. Not because they deserve it. Not because they asked for it. Just because he did it for us, we do it for them. He said, you're not better than me. You're not greater than me. You don't have any excuse to deny anybody else what I've just done for you. Happy are you if you do them. Now, if you haven't yet figured this out, there's no happier place in this world for a Christian to be than following the example of Jesus. There's nowhere else that you can find more satisfaction and more contentment. There, there is no greater joy that exists for a Christian than to follow Christ. He preached, Brother Keith, he's talking about washing feet. No, he's talking about the way that we live our life every day. If we live it by his example, there is nothing greater that we can do that will bring us more joy, more satisfaction, more contentment, more peace than to follow the example of Christ. 
I speak not of you all. Again, Jesus knew who he's dealing with here. He washed Judas's feet. He knew that there was a wolf among the sheep. He knew that there was a tear among the wheat. But he washed Judas's feet. Knowing full well that he was about to deny him. Knowing full well that Judas had never been justified. He hadn't been cleansed internally, but he's still doing for him what he's doing for everybody else. And then the last thing he said, He that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me. And who, whoever receives me receives the one that sent me who is the Father. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that what's the next word? Whosoever. Jesus said you, you go do what I've done. You, I've shown you what, the way that I want you to live your life. I, I've shown you how to love like I love. Knowing everything that I know, I still love. Even to the very end, I love. Even the betrayer, I love. Even the one that's going to sell me out for 30 pieces of silver. But it's a whosoever gospel. So everybody deserves to hear it. Everybody deserves an opportunity. And that's what we're called to do. We're called to go into the world and call everybody to Jesus. Even those that are faking it. Even those that are pretending to be something that they're not. There's no excuse for us not to love. There's no excuse for us not to serve. There's no excuse for us not to extend an opportunity for anybody and everybody to receive Jesus. And then the last thing I want to point you to is what he felt. Look at verse 21. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit. And testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Now that's how John always referred to himself. And I don't think it was a proud statement. I think it was a humble statement. John knew that he was loved and that he didn't deserve to be loved. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. Who's Jesus? John. John, ask him. Ask him who he's talking about. Now, I've looked at some interesting diagrams this week about how they reclined at the table back then and celebrated the Lord's Supper. And, and the indications, and this is what I believe probably happened, is that John was sitting on one side of Jesus and Judas was sitting on the other. And, and the, the way that the table, the, the bread went around the table. And it was also a custom back then to serve the first morsel of bread to the most honored guest. You see what happens in a few minutes. Verse 25, he, that's John, lying on Jesus' breast, said unto him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, he it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon. 
And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then Jesus said, That thou doest, do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. For some of them thought because Judas had the bag that Jesus said unto him, Buy those things that we have need against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So he then, Judas then, having received the sop, went immediately out. And it was night. The Bible said that he was troubled in spirit. Now, I got, you gotta, you got to kind of just take yourself back here. Jesus has spent the last three and a half years of his life with this man named Judas. He had sent Judas out with the others. They'd seen incredible miracles performed. He was there at the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. He was there when the demons were cast out. He was there through all of the miracles that Jesus performed, through all of the good things that Jesus had done. Jesus had invested three and a half years of his life in this man. But he knew that there was nothing else that could be done for him. Listen, I think that what it says at the beginning of John 13... He loved them until the end that he loved Judas all the way up to this moment, knowing full well what he was about to do, but giving him every opportunity not to do it. And he gave Judas leave. Literally treated him like the honored guest, gave him the first dip of bread. He said, what you got to do, go do it. And I don't believe there's any pleasure in that whatsoever for Jesus, but Judas had made his own choice. And he'd been making that choice, by the way. It wasn't something that happened suddenly. In fact, if you read back through the gospel, he said that the devil had already put this into his heart. He had already made some plans to betray Jesus. He'd already been skimming some money off the top. Jesus was not the man that Judas thought he was. Judas thought he was about to be part of a ruling elite in the nation of Israel, that Jesus was going to immediately establish his throne, going to crush the Romans, and those guys were going to sit and rule with him immediately. Judas was looking for a king. He, didn't, he wasn't looking for a savior. He was looking for a king. But before Jesus can become your king, he's got to be your savior. But he gave Judas leave. He said, go do what you got to do. Um, I, I'm not going to go read it, but if you go to Romans chapter 1, you'll see this, that because of some of them and their, their mentality about who God is, they begin to fabricate their own ideas about who God is and who they wanted God to be. And there are three times that you'll find in Romans chapter 1 where the Bible says that God gave them up. In fact, I think it says that twice. He gave them up, He gave them up, and then it says He gave them over to a reprobate mind. I think there's something interesting in that 30th verse that immediately after Judas received that bread from Jesus that he went out. And then I don't believe there's any wasted words in Scripture. And it was not. Judas... 
walked away from the light of the world and stepped out into eternal darkness. Because before the morning broke, Judas was already lifting up his eyes in eternal torment. No wonder Jesus was troubled. He wasn't troubled because Judas was about to betray him. He knew all along that Judas was the betrayer. He's troubled because Judas is about to take that final step that will forever separate him from the presence of the one who loved him unto the end. You know, I think the only consolation for Jesus in all of that is that Judas could not have been loved any more than he was loved. Nothing else could have been done. Nothing else could have been said. Judas was not denied an opportunity. He wasn't served differently. He wasn't left out when Jesus washed feet. That's the only consolation is I've done all that I can do. And the final choice is up to, up to you. Now, Jesus' last words to live in witnesses, as far as I'm concerned, this passage of Scripture says that he taught us, those that he left behind to perpetuate the gospel, that he taught us that one of the most important things that we can do is that we love other people like he loved us. Love like me. But let me ask you some questions, the same questions that we considered about Jesus this morning. What, what, what do we know? What do we know? We know who Jesus is. We know who we are in Jesus. Saved, forgiven, children of God, redeemed. You know, the list goes on and on. We know where we're going because of Jesus. The Bible says that we have a home with him in heaven. He's going to reiterate that in John chapter 14 for us. We also know that he loved us enough to die in our place. And he loves us enough to clean us up every day. That he saved us when he died in our place and that he saves us every day when he washes us and washes us and washes us and washes us. How many times do we have to forgive other people, Jesus? Many times I've forgiven you. Uh-oh. <laughs> so what should we do? Exactly what he's done. In humility. In love. Serve one another. No exclusions. Treat Judas, just like you treat John, 
whether it's a dirty, just dirty feet or a dirty heart, love folks, love people. I don't think the church shines any brighter than when we're serving somebody else. I thought about this morning when we went over and helped clean up in Cockwood after, was it Michael, Hurricane Michael, a few years ago? I thought about it all the way back. You know, we didn't ask anybody that day where they went to church. Didn't matter if they was white or black. We didn't ask anybody what their political affiliations were, whether they voted for Obama or Bush or who, what. We didn't ask them any questions, not Obama and Bush. I don't even remember who Obama ran against now. but <laughs> We didn't ask anybody anything. We just we went and served people. Folks wept. We, they tried to offer us money. We said, we don't want anything for what we've done. We've served. We've done what we've done in the name of the Lord. I remember the Jewish man who has rejected our Christ. The last man we served that day came out and tried to pay us. With tears in his eyes, he said, I've always had a little bit of a attitude against Christianity but he said something changed today why because we did what Jesus did no exclusions so we know what we know and we know what we ought to do what should we say it's pretty simple really that Jesus saves That it's a joy to serve him because of what he's done for us. That whoever wants to come can come. It don't matter whether you just got dirty feet or a dirty heart. That Jesus will take you as you are. He said, he's going to reiterate this in chapter 17. We're going to get to it. But he said, if you receive those that, sent, that I send, you receive me. If you receive me, you receive him that sent me. So Jesus said, you go out and do like I did, like I did and you go out and say what I said. And when they hear your words and respond to your words about me, then they've received me. And when they've received me, they've received the Father that sent me. So we just go tell people, hey, I, he cleansed me from sin, clothed me in his righteousness, and he'll do the same thing for you. And then the last question, what should we feel? We ought to feel a great deal of sorrow. For the people that won't hear the message and believe it. And I don't care whether they're Muslim or Jewish. Red, yellow, black, or white. Heterosexual, homosexual. The word of God says that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. None. Nor should we. 
He's called us to go and proclaim a message that everybody won't receive. And yeah, he said, if they won't receive you, you can shake the dust off your feet. You've done what I've said for you to do. But we ought to take no pleasure in the fact that they don't. But when one hears, and one believes, and one receives, we ought to join the angels in glory and a shout of joy. Just like heaven did when we came to him. And I think the last thing that we ought to feel is a great burden to do all that we can while we can to love this world like Jesus loved it. Let's stand together. Lord, we thank you for what you knew. Thank you for what you did. Thank you for what you said. Thank you for what you felt. And I pray this morning that you'd help us to see this passage of scripture with a brand new set of eyes. Hear it with a brand new set of ears. And look around us at a world that's dying. And go love them like you love them. And I'd be the first one to tell you, Lord, it's easy for me to get angry with folks. And it's easy for me to feel hard and bitter and unforgiving. But that's not you in me, that's the flesh in me. It's easy for me to just write folks off. But I believe you love Judas right up to the end. In fact, that night when he met you in the garden, you still called him your friend. I pray that, God, you just add your blessing to this word this morning and it'll find a lodging place in our hearts and lives. And if there's one person here this morning that doesn't know you, Jesus, I pray you just let them know this morning that they're, that they're a whosoever. Whosoever hears and believes. will be saved. Give them my ear of faith this morning that they can step out confess you as the Savior and Lord of their life. For anything and everything you do, God, we'll praise you. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.